We are on Sunday night in a series called The Life with Luke, and we're learning about the life of Jesus according to the account from Luke as he gives this orderly collected account for his friend, for his colleague, Theophilus. Tonight I want to talk to you about trading, and so I'm going to make an example of some teenagers. They get big-eyed at this point. Lauren, would you come here for just a second? Bring your purse with you. All right, Lauren, what would you say is the most valuable thing you have on you at this point? Your keys. Could I have them? Could or could you could you get them out so everybody can see them? All right. So, Lauren, I'd like to play a game with you called I want to make a trade, okay? Okay. All right. Now, your keys. My goodness. How many cars do you drive, girl? <laughs> okay. What I'd like to trade for you is one fabulous rubber band. Uh, it is very nice. It stretches. I'm sure you could stretch it out even more. I can. I, you can shoot people with this. It's seventh graders, eighth graders, they're not behaving. I mean, there's so many things you can do with this. You can hold things together. Um, so, Lauren, I would like to ask you, would you like to trade me your useless keys to a car that you probably don't like that much anyway for this beautiful, fabulous, stretchy rubber band? Are you sure? You're very sure that you're going to not trade me, huh? Unless it comes with money. Well, <laughs> you're a smart girl, but unfortunately, no. It's just a rubber band. Okay. All right. Can I ask you, in front of just you and me and all these people here, uh, why is it that you would not make that trade? This, you value more than this. Ah, I see. Okay, well, let me go find someone else, see if there's someone dumber. I mean, uh, just another volunteer. All right. Let me go around to this side here. Uh, he knows I'm going to pick on him. Brian, come here, buddy. Got your wallet with you and everything? Come here. Brian, what would you say is the most valuable thing you have on you? Your wallet, okay. And what's in your wallet? A debit card. Money? How much money? Go ahead, pull it out. I want to know. Oh, ten bucks? Okay, well, all right, all right. <laughs> all right. A debit card and ten dollars. Okay. Well, and it's a leather wallet. Ooh, look at that. What what else do you have in there? A gas card. That'll come in handy. Okay, quick trip card. Good. ID. Okay, you and I look pretty similar, so, I mean, the ID would come in... Um, so I thought I thought maybe now Lauren she dissed my idea of the rubber band so I thought for for you I've got something extra special this is a Carlos O'Kelly's ten dollar gift card now you already said you have ten dollars in cash so I mean you are already ahead of the game in addition to getting basically a trade for trade you you also get delicious Mexican food from Carlos O'Kelly's that's uh, somebody gave this to me and they apparently didn't know what restaurant I'm always at would you like to trade the contents of your wallet for this wonderful, you can use it at any time. This gift card may be applied for the purchase of food and beverage at any Carlos O'Kelly's. And not just the one on the west side, the one on the east side as well. I present to you this offer. 
the old room. Oh, we're bartering now. Okay, a, a, a room key to the hotel in Arlington, Texas. And I have to have a conversation with Jim Weathers. <laughs> well, I, I'm afraid I want the whole wallet, Brian. If you'll give me the whole wallet, I'd be willing to trade you. Not willing to do that? Okay. You'll buy it from me for a dollar. Well, that's also a terrible trade. All right, let's do Let's do one more here, see if i got anything else to trade. Okay, uh, Lainey, come here. I'm bringing your purse with you. Again, with you, what's the most valuable thing that you have, Lainey? Your Bible. Oh, she got spiritual. Very good. Okay. I tell you what, now, that's a wonderful-looking Bible. It's leather-bound. It's got the strap and everything. I have no doubt that that is a wonderful book, but I'm clearly the preacher. I know the Bible. i got lots of them. What I would like to trade is this. I would really like your phone. Could you get it out? Uh, see, it's already preloaded with the Snapchat and the Insta-Twit face and everything. It's got all of your social media. It, I could text all of your friends. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, <laughs> would you trade me your phone for this beautiful and and this also is pliable bendable paper clip you don't think so why would you not trade me that the old useless unnecessary phone that you happen to be checking right during my illustration <laughs> for this fabulous one of a kind straight from my office desk paper clip just don't think it'll do a lot for you, huh? All right. You can have a seat. Uh, what we're talking about tonight is bad trades. Now, you and I don't call it bad trades. You and I would know it by a more biblical term, temptation. And uh, I was thinking tonight, uh, we've got somebody with a microphone, right, that we would just go down and pass it around, and you could could share some of your temptations and just we'll just do that right now, okay? I'm kidding. Makes you nervous, doesn't it? It's strange that that even religious people get nervous just talking about temptation. But the nature of temptation, what we're talking about tonight, is a bad trade. Now, we're going to look at the bad trade that Satan tried to make Jesus. So if you're interested, you would turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is where we'll be. As you turn there, I'll tell you what you already know. One, temptation is real. Two, rather ironically, religious people don't often acknowledge it beyond the general. Oh, yes, temptation. We're all tempted. But it's a very real human experience. As part of the human experience, as part of becoming human, Jesus was tempted too. And so he was tempted just like we are. Imagine that for just a second. God in the flesh tempted as we are. And what could you possibly tempt God in the flesh with? And you would think that would be an impossible task, but the enemy was up to it. And believe it or not, he made the same kind of temptations. Not exactly this same type, but the same kind of temptations that you and I face on a daily basis. So we're going to learn a thing or two about temptation, what it is, and maybe why resisting it matters. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 is where we'll be. It'll be our text tonight. 
page 1102, if you're looking at a pew Bible. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, spilled by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing for those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, the moment, in a moment of time, and said to him, To you... I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. As we read through this, tonight I want to focus in on some things that I think and hope that we can learn from Jesus' temptation about our own temptation. The first is this. No one escapes temptation. The elders are tempted. Your preacher is tempted. You are tempted. Jesus was tempted. But no temptation is beyond escape. There's an escape for everyone. The the first four verses of this remind us uh, that every human as part of living in a broken, sinful world will be tempted by the enemy. There's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But but no one escapes it. So for just a minute, stop looking at the preacher and stop looking at your Bible and stop looking at your phone and, and look up and look around. Just 180 degrees will do it. Behind you, to the side of you, in front of you. Every single person whose eyes you landed on faced temptation this past week and will be tempted this week. Satan is audacious. He is relentless in in his tempting of us. Even Jesus who was full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit, not into temptation, but as he was led by the Spirit, he was tempted to sin. Sounds strange. Here, you and I, in Christ, have the Spirit within us, and still yet, we will be tempted. Everyone's temptation is different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to understand that, that no one is beyond it. Who are you to think you won't be? The, the best thing that Satan can do, the enemy can do, is get you to think that you are beyond it. 
That because you're Christian, because you go to church, because you do good things, because you're a deacon or an elder or in leadership in some way, that, that, that you've moved beyond a point of temptation. But even Jesus, who was at the zenith of spiritual maturity, uh, Satan did not relent in tempting him. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth, and he said to a group of Christians who not only were tempted, but had fallen to that temptation in many ways, and, and speaking in, a, 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 in regard to idolatry, he says this, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. I'm not sure what your temptation is. I'm not sure how often you fight it. But across all the different types, the basic kinds of temptation are the same. And they're common to man, as Paul says. And when you're given that temptation, we are promised that there's a way out, a provided way out. Jesus, the ultimate example, sought the way out. He, he sought back to the heart of his father every single time. Uh, many times he says, it is written, away from me, Satan. He, he flees from evil and pursues his father. And here's the thing. When you think you're above temptation, you're already succumbing to it. Uh, Satan's working on that pride. And if he can just build it up enough, he will eventually get you to fall. So we all battle temptation at some form, at some point, along the way, and, and continually along the way. The good news here is this. As we see from Jesus, there is blessing in the battling. That when we fight it, there's lessons for us to be learned. There are things that make us stronger and better and mature us. <clears throat> uh, verse 5 and following. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, but I will, to, to you I will give all this authority and their glory... For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to you to whom I will. <clears throat> if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, What's interesting here is that as Jesus is being tempted, of course, we see verse 4, uh, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So he quotes the word there. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is when Jesus uh, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and the ESC says, in a moment of time. Now, whether he gave him a vision, how he was able to see that, the scripture doesn't precisely say. But he says, if you'll just bow your knee to me, I'll give it all to you. It's under my authority, which is a whole other lesson within itself. 
But it's mine to give away. You just have to bow your knee to me. It will all be yours. Okay? And then he again says, it is written, you'll worship the, God, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The third time, he takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point there. And he says, just throw yourself down. And what Satan does here is interesting. He knows Jesus knows the word. He probably realizes he was there when the word was written. He was there as the spirit inspired the word. And so what he does is he doesn't back away from the word. In fact, what he does is he tries to take the word and twist it. Satan himself here quoting scripture, for it is written, for it is written. It's important for us to remember it's important to know the word of God, but it's also important to discern the word of God. It's not just enough to read it. You've got to think about it. You've got you to be, be understanding of what the scripture calls us to do. Satan himself knows the scripture. But if he can, he'll twist it in such a way that he'll say, well, did God really say that? And then he'll smoothly try to deceive on the pretense of using Scripture. We see that in the world today. There's some people who mock God, and then they take the Word of God and say, well, you know, the Scripture says that, but the Scripture also talks about... I mean, the Scripture can't really be right because it talks about, you know, all sorts of wearing mixed clothing and, 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 and all of these uh, just absolutely ridiculous laws and rules that no one follows and no one uh, pays attention to. You're just picking and choosing. See? Now, I could say... It's the person making that argument. What really is happening is the same thing that's happening in the third temptation of Jesus. Jesus, the enemy there, is taking the scripture and just giving parts of it and twisting it for the intent of deceiving. We have to know the word. We have to be able to discern the word. That's very important. A couple of lessons for us. In each battle, we note that Jesus draws his sword. I refer to this as a sword because Hebrews 4.12 says that. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. If we just simply let the word do the work, Isaiah 55, so it is with my word, it accomplishes what I desire and what I will, says the Lord. We, we need to use God's word and we need to use it carefully and thoughtfully and with discernment, rightly dividing the word. Satan will often use even this very word to confuse and deceive. But the word, simple as it is, has great power to cut through the mind to cut through the deceptions of the heart, to cut right through to the issue that God needs you to understand with simple, powerful truth from God. Now, what's important to remember for you and I, see, Jesus had this advantage where he knew the word up here. In my opinion, I think he knew it, not only because he was Jewish and Jewish children were raised to memorize the Pentateuch, but, but he had this part of God working with him in him himself. So he knew the word. It does, it does us no good to go into battle, and I mean to go into the world, 
be it at school, at work, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family, as we're living day to day to keep the the sword in its sheath. It doesn't do any good. We have to be constantly using it, sharpening it, making sure that we understand how it works and that we train with it. Every time you read it, every time you listen to it, every time you think about it, every time you memorize it, every time you meditate on it, every time, most importantly, that you act on it, what you're really doing is using your sword and preparing for the next battle. And that's important. Jesus surely knew that the first time he was tempted would not be the last time. Even the third time that he was tempted was not the last time. But he used the word effectively. May we, when we are confused, when the world steps in and tries to um, twist the words of God, may we draw nearer to the sword and nearer to his word. Because what are we really doing in that? We're really drawing closer to the heart of God. And the closer, the closer we are to him, the less likely we will have any trouble when we're tempted. Turn to James chapter 1. The, we said the, in each battle, Jesus draws a sword. And it's for, important for us to use the sword wisely. But when we are tempted, there's something that we can gain from that. When you undergo a trial, a temptation, there's a great opportunity. James chapter 1, 12 and following. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is a a blessing every time we battle. And it's this. It draws us closer to the crown. After this final temptation, after the, 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 the final temptation in this instance, rather, in this third temptation, Jesus, after having gone through those, think about it. Even Jesus here is stronger spiritually. He's more mature. He's, he has greater faith. He's trusting in the Lord more because he's resisted temptation, because he's resisted that which the enemy has presented. When, when we talk about temptation, God does not lead, does not tempt anyone, and he does not lead anyone intentionally, purposely in test, in, into temptation. But in testing, there's something that happens. Uh, whether you're an engineer and you test things, or you're taking a test at school, um, in testing, what you're looking for is to examine the failure points, to figure out where where you, if you've studied something, where the way you're studying is incorrect. If you get 100% on the test, then, then your study methods for that particular, what, whatever you're trying to learn, uh, doesn't have a failure point. Uh, testing shows us where the fail points are, both the real fail points and the potential ones. 
So there's, there's blessing in the battling. We learn to use the, the sword. We learn to use the word. We learn to rely on God. And it draws us nearer to the crown, to the prize. And, and with every temptation that we resist, every time we use the word properly, it makes us that much stronger for the next. Now it goes the other way too. Every time you feed the flesh as opposed to feeding the spirit, you make it that much easier for the flesh to take over. And you make it that much harder for the spirit to take hold. So we've we got to remember there is blessing in the battle. It may not feel good. You, you, you may wonder why you're going through what you're facing, what temptation you might be facing. But there's a great opportunity in every battle that we face. May we not forget uh, how Jesus found blessing even in the battle. Finally... In the battle, the third thing we learn is that temptations are temporary. The, nat- the nature of a temptation is a temporary one. It's not made to last. Uh, I did not carry out the, the temptation, the, the attempt to make a bad trade with those three teenagers for the entire length of time. One, because that would have been really awkward for a sermon. But two, because that's not the nature of temptation. Temptation does not press and press and press and never let go. Temptation is something, whatever it is, that when resisted, at some point will relent. That's because we're, it's a spiritual battle. May we not forget that the devil left Jesus. That doesn't mean he gave up on Jesus. Okay? He was still working on Jesus, as he still work on you. But when the devil tempts you, when the spiritual, when the, when the spiritual enemy tempts you, If you'll resist that, eventually that temptation will go away. You'll be stronger for it. You'll know the word better. You'll be closer to the Father because of it. Verse 13. um, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is where I want to talk about the nature of temptation and really what it is. Temptation, as we said, is a bad trade. None of the teens took me up on my offer because what I offered them paled in comparison in terms of value to what I asked them to give up. Temptation is the very same way from Satan's perspective. You think about it. I mean, whether it was Eve or Jesus or you and I, the thing he's asking you to give up is far greater in value than that which he will offer you. So how do you get people to play the game? How do you get people to fall for the game? Temptation is the offer to have what is eternal in value in exchange for what is everlasting. Um, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the prophet says, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil.'" who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All that's happening there is an exchange of something very valuable for something that is not valuable at all, something that is far less desirable. It is seen when we watch Eve trade utopia for some forbidden fruit, We see it when Esau trades a lifetime blessing that he did not earn and that was his without doing anything, and he traded that away 
or just a little bowl of stew. We see it when David trades his powerful nobility and his godly example for a few hours of pleasure. The Hebrew writer says this about Esau's trade. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and following. Um, and he's, the writer is speaking here about something greater. But, but he says, do not be <clears throat> godless like Esau. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, is the ESV, like Esau, who sold for his birthright a single meal. And we can pick on Esau for trading away what was rightfully his and what belonged to him and what was of high value in exchange for a simple bowl of stew. I mean, I love the chicken tortilla soup from Chick-fil-A. This time of year is wonderful. Um, but the idea that I would trade my, my inheritance, my eternal blessing, for one meal seems silly. And yet we watch people make bad trades all the time. Uh, you, you know when someone's made a bad trade when you, when you have this, how could they do that? What were they thinking? Some of you sports fans know like maybe when there's a, a bad draft pick. What were they thinking paying that many millions for that guy? But it happens all the time in other areas of life. We watch someone leave 40 years of marriage for a fling. We watch someone choose rear instead of their own children. We watch someone go in debt up to their eyeballs for toys, go down in value. We watch someone choose gossip and jealousy instead of godliness and joy. There are lots of bad trades in life. I'm sure you've made some bad trades in yours. I've made some myself. That's the nature of temptation. That when you look at it, either when you look backwards on it and say, oh, how could I have been so foolish? Or when you look at the out, from that outside perspective at someone else's choice and say, oh, how could they be so foolish? That's temptation. That's when someone has fallen to temptation. How does, how does the devil, how does our enemy get people to make such foolish trades? My simple answer is marketing. It's an appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I get a certain number of people who intentionally, purposefully, when I wear a suit and tie, tell me how much they appreciate that and how good I look. I receive it graciously, but you need to know you are not helping because you're being used by the enemy to fill me with pride. You're looking at me instead of paying attention to God. I only give that example to say Satan's always working. 
he's appealing to the flesh, he's appealing to the eyes, or he's appealing to the pride. Listen to what John says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When you tell me I look good, it tings something in my mind, something of me, something that's unholy, something that's of the flesh, something that's of the world that says, yeah, I do look good, don't I? It's dangerous. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away. Can can I just back that up for a second and say that again? The world and its desires are passing away. The nature of temptation is temporary, along with its desires. But he who does the will of God abides forever. There are many points and places where you will be tempted. And may I remind you of First John 2. The temptations are the same. The nature of them does not change. They are temporary. They are from the world. They will not last. And what you have to do is seek the things which help you draw toward the Father and away from the world. All temptation, the nature of it, is temporary. Sin feels good. Is designed to feel the same nature as flesh. It's designed to appeal to the flesh. But, but only in the short term. Sin offers only temporary fleeting things. Pleasure of the flesh. Good feelings. But sin always, always demands that we trade what's eternal in exchange for what is not. The last thing on this is what the verse 13 says. The devil left him until an opportune time. You need to know that the devil is so very, very, very patient. He is 100% tenacious. He will not give up. This is not the last time, by the way, that Jesus and Satan would do battle. It is not the last time that Satan would present himself and present to Jesus an offer to exchange what was good and of the Father and eternal and rightfully his and trade it for something not valuable, worthless, and temporary. James 4, 7 reminds us this. And this is the good news. Satan will leave, but the bad news is he will return. Submit yourselves to God, therefore. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan will leave if you resist him, but he will come back. Sometimes we resist temptation 
and believe. Oh, I resisted that. Good for me, you know. I mean, and, and that is a good thing. But, but let we, lest we be too foolish, may we not cease preparing for the next battle. Because it will come. So knowing this in temptation of whatever type, may we learn and may we take away this final lesson. Hold firm. Jesus was offered some pretty amazing things, if you think about it. I mean, quite astounding. But as, as good as those things seemed, they were only temporary. They were, they were paled in comparison to the victory that he had ahead of him. And Jesus knew, despite how good it was, it was a terribly bad trade. He held on to the win that he knew would be his. May I encourage you with this as we close. Jesus wants you and I to simply hold on to the win. You will be tempted in the lust of the flesh. You will be tempted in the lust of the eyes. You will be tempted in the pride of life. Now it will look different for each person. Hold on to what? wins. Hold on to what is yours. Hold on to the victory. The winning strategy has always been the same. Resist the devil. Flee from evil. Seek the good and obey the Lord. The most beautiful thing about Jesus is that he understands your temptation, not just as you understand your temptation, he understands it better than you understand your temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 says this of the Savior. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly To the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I stop for just a minute. This is the struggle of people in religious leadership. I sort of kind of, sort of dread when people ask me what I do for a living. Because as soon as I say a minister or a work in the church world, I'm a leader in the church world, I can't really fully describe it, but to say there is a sterilizing effect. People tend to to talk about things that they think I would want to talk about, and they tend to diminish things. That they, or they, they talk about how good of a person they are that they go to church to and, and all of that. They, they, they don't mention things that they struggle with or things that they're battling or trials and temptations because, I think Hebrews 4 describes it, they think that people of faith may be unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this is where Jesus far surpasses all of us. He is able to empathize in every way with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, the scripture goes on to say, just as we are. 
yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Tonight, if you do not know the high priest, I would be glad to make an introduction to help you to find Jesus and more importantly, to obey Jesus, to follow him and to walk as he called us to walk. And if you've followed him and you've been following him, but you've had some, some stumbles, some falls, some sins, some temptations where you've succumbed, and you need his grace, I invite you to come. Whatever you might need, either his mercy and his grace or our prayers and encouragement, whatever need you might have, if there is one, please come as together we stand and sing.